You'll start making your way back to your seats. And as you do, I want to invite you to open your Bible to two places. I want you to open your Bible to Judges chapter 10. Put your finger there and then flip over to Matthew chapter 13. So Judges 10, that's where we're going to, Judges 10 through 12 is where we're going to spend most of our time. But I want to read here at the beginning, Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 13. And I know you just got back to your seats, but I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. Matthew 13, verses 10 through 13. Matthew records this and he says, Then the disciples came up and asked him, that's Jesus, they asked Jesus, why are you speaking to them in parables? And he answered, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given for them. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. That is why I speak to them in parables. Because looking, they do not see, and hearing, they do not understand or listen. And I want to preach from this idea this morning, we need the same old story. Let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this morning. God, we ask right now that your spirit would be moving in this place, because this moment is too big for any one of us, as we open your word to hear from you. And so may it not be said of us that we hear, but we do not listen, and that we hear, but we do not understand. I ask God that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We, we need the same old story. Continuing on in our series through the book of Judges, a series entitled Broken leaders in God's unbroken promise. I'm excited. We're going to look at the the fifth judge, the fifth major judge this morning, Jephthah. Jephthah's story is very unique. But before we get to that, let me say this by way of an introduction. I was, this week, I was reading an interesting news story. It was an interview with a woman uh, in Ukraine. I don't know if you know this. I know that our social media news has moved on, but there's still a war raging in Eastern Europe and a people who desperately need our prayers. But I was reading this interview and, and I, I intentionally look up stories about Ukraine because I don't want to forget what's going on. I don't want to forget the, the pain and, and forget to pray. And, and I was reading this interview and this woman's perspective was astounding to me. There's an individual... It, interviewing this woman, and he noted about her that in the midst of all the carnage, in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of death and destruction, she somehow still had hope. And the woman's response was incredible to me. She said, I do have hope. But she said this, she said, I don't know where it will come from. I don't know how I will see it. But I know every day hope arrives in the most unlikely of ways. And as I considered her response, at first I was amazed at the resiliency of this woman in the face of a brutal war to be able to have that perspective. But the more I thought about her response, the more I was actually heartbroken for her. You see, here is a woman who desperately needs hope. 
And she doesn't know where it's going to come from. She doesn't know how she will see it, but she is hoping on hope. She is hoping that every day hope will come without any idea or any confidence that it will show up. And I started to think about us as Christians and how amazing our hope is because we don't have to guess where it will come from. It's not a fickle hope. It's not a fleeting hope. It is, an, it is not an ever-changing hope. In fact, our hope is a never-changing hope because it is grounded in a never-changing God. And what I'm, what I'm getting at this morning is that there are some of us who are looking for hope in a new thing. We're looking for hope in a new job. We're looking for hope in a new experience. We're looking for hope in a new relationship. We look for it in new technology, in new clothing, whatever is new. But I, I want to tell you this morning, we don't need a new hope because we have an old story. It's interesting to me because the more I study the Bible, the more I've come to realize that the Bible's not that complicated. I know some of y'all are like, well, maybe you're reading a different book. But I've come to realize that through various people, through various places, in various circumstances, through various stories, God is telling one story. He is telling the story that there is a God who is worthy. He is telling the story of how he created the heavens and the earth and he breathed the breath of life into his creation and he gave them the freedom to choose, to love God or to reject him. And as the story goes, mankind chose to reject him. But the story doesn't end there because God wasn't ready to give up on his creation. And from eternity past, God had a plan that when mankind could not save themselves, when we could not get to God, he would come to us. Church, that's the gospel that we believe. That though we've sinned and rebelled against God, he loves us so much that when we could not get to him, he came to us. And Jesus, God in flesh, walked in this world, lived the perfect life that we should have lived, died the death that we deserve to die. He hung in our place on a cross, and as his blood flowed, so did mercy. And he died our death, was buried, raised from the dead three days later. And in the empty tomb, we find our victory. It's a story that declares to us that we serve a worthy God. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our attention. He is worthy of our lives. And make no mistake, though we call it a story, it's not in the fiction section. But it is a story of the world as it truly is. And in this story, we have hope. And I'll be honest with you, church. It's the only story I want to tell. See, here's the interesting thing about preaching. Here's the beautiful and the hard thing about preaching. I'm going to let you in on the inside. The beautiful thing about preaching is that I don't have to make up stories to tell. God gives me the story that I'm to proclaim. But here's the hard thing about preaching. God isn't making up new stories. It's the same old story. And so what that means is that the goal of preaching is to take the same old story and proclaim it to you in such a way that you still see the hope that is present in the story. That you walk away still seeing God as beautiful. You know, every morning as I drive into church, I'm driving in sometimes before some of y'all are even awake. I know when you walk in, okay? I'm, I'm driving in. I've prayed for the past 14 years of my ministry the same prayer as I drive into church every Sunday. God, may you look glorious and may your gospel overwhelm us. That's it. That's what I pray. God, may you look glorious and may your gospel overwhelm us. And the way I attempt to help in that 
is by proclaiming week after week small pieces of that same grand old story. And stories matter. We are a people of stories, right? We resonate with stories. I mean, think about it. How much of your life is spent listening to a story or telling a story? We, we live in stories. That's why one of the chief ways God communicates to us in Scripture is story. There's a reason that almost half the Bible is written as a narrative. It's telling you a story because stories resonate with us. I like I like what Joshua Chatra says in his book, Telling a Better Story, when he writes this about our current world. He says, for all our cultural distance, he's talking about our relationship to the Christians of old and how culture has changed and shifted. And he said, for all our cultural difference, we're still gathering to tell stories and to be shaped by them. We attempt to explain the world through story and the stories we tell turn around and explain us. He writes, consequently, even when a culture seems to have abandoned the gospel, they haven't abandoned story. They can't because stories, both big worldview stories that remain unarticulated by many and the small micro stories we interact with in our daily lives provide a way into the world and a bridge into sharing God's story. Stories matter. And no one was better at telling stories than Jesus. As we read at the beginning, the reason I started with Matthew 13, Jesus would often teach most of his teaching came in parables. He was a master of taking ordinary things and teaching through them extraordinary truths. He had the ability to take the mundane physical and teach spiritual truths. Parables, they're found all throughout his teaching. And the significance of a parable was for those that had eyes to see the parable let them gaze into the spiritual world. But for those who did not, the parable was just a nice story. And the reason I say all of this at the beginning is because the story of Jephthah is unique in the book of Judges. It's unique in that not only do we see the story like we've seen over and over in Judges regarding Israel's sin, right? The cycle continues. The people sin. They cry out to God. God is faithful. He raises up a judge. The judge delivers the people. And after the judge dies, the people fall back into sin. We see that. I don't want to minimize that. But the story of Jephthah also serves a unique purpose because Jephthah serves as a parable for us. See, as we watch how Israel interacted with Jephthah, we see God showing them how they've been interacting with him, interacting with him the whole time. One theologian, Miles Van Pelt, he says it like this. He says, as the narrative progresses, the people of Israel deal with Jephthah on earth how they deal with God in heaven. They reject him, but they cry out to him to save them. They repent and make him head over them. And then in the end, they turn on him after having been delivered. He says, the cycle continues as on earth, so in heaven. The narrative of Jephthah is something of a parable. And it puts on display the ongoing corruption of Israel. And in the end, for Jephthah to deliver Israel, it will cost him his only child. The parabolic nature of this account is the intentional design of the author. It's not an accident. Jephthah is telling a bigger story. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to walk through the story and I want to do two things. I want to show you how the story of Jephthah is a parable for Israel and perhaps us. And I want to also draw some lessons out 
along the way. I hope you have your Bible because I don't have points for you. We're just going to walk through these two chapters. You'll know we're getting close to the end when we're getting close to the end of chapter 12. So we pick up chapter 10 beginning in verse 6. So if you remember last week, going back a week, we left off with Gideon. And since Gideon, two minor judges have come on the scene. So at the beginning of 10, uh, chapter 10, we meet Tola and Jair. And the cycle continues. Although there's not a great deal of detail given, the cycle continues. After Gideon, the people rebel again. They fall into sin. They cry out. God raises up Tola. Tola delivers them. After Tola dies, they go right back to their sin. They find themselves in the midst of their sin. It's too much for them. They cry out for God's deliverance. God raises up Jair. Jair delivers them. After Jair dies, the people go right back to their sin. And so the cycle continues. And we pick up in chapter 10, beginning in verse 6, reading through verse 16. It says, Then the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They worshipped the Baals and the Ashtoreths. The gods of Aram, Sidon, and Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines, they abandoned the Lord and they did not worship him. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he sold them to the Philistines and the Ammonites. Pause, those two players are going to be major players for the rest of the story. We'll see the Ammonites this week with Jephthah and the Philistines over the next few weeks with Samson. It says they shattered and crushed the Israelites that year. And for 18 years, they did the same to all the Israelites who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. Israel was greatly oppressed, so they cried out to the Lord saying, Notice this, it's different this week. We have sinned against you. We have abandoned our God and worshipped the Baals. But the Lord said to the Israelites, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, did I not deliver you from them? But you have abandoned me and worship other gods. Therefore, I will not deliver you again. Go and cry out to the gods that you have chosen. Let them deliver you whenever you are oppressed. But the Israelites said, we have sinned. Deal with us as you see fit, only rescue us. So they got rid of the foreign gods among them and worshipped the Lord. And he, that's God, became weary of Israel's misery. So Israel's in this cycle of sin again. But in this account, as you picked up, there are, in this account of their rebellion, there are some elements that we've not seen before in this cycle. So let me, let me point out, A few of them first, we see a contrast between Israel's sevenfold rebellion and God's sevenfold faithfulness. Did you catch it? There in verse 6, God says that their rebellion consisted of worshiping seven idols Baal, the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the Philistines. There are seven of them. You see, seven in the Bible is a a number of significance because it signifies something. It signifies completeness or fullness. And so God, by listing seven idols, because it probably wasn't only seven, but God is intentional to just mention seven. He's highlighting the fullness of their rebellion, the completeness of their idolatry. But then he contrasts the fullness of their idolatry with the fullness of his deliverance. God's sevenfold faithfulness. Because look at verse 11. The Lord said to the Israelites, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Monites oppressed you, seven of them, 
And you cried out to me, did I not deliver you from them? But you have abandoned me and worshipped other gods. Therefore, I will not deliver again. I don't want you to miss this, church. God is saying, for every time you've rebelled against me, I got a record of faithfulness to tell you why you should have trusted me. God is saying that if you want to tell me you aren't going to worship me, the reason better not be because you don't think I'm faithful. The reason better not be because you don't have a good record of my goodness. God says I have a track record of being a good God. I got a history with you and that history ought to push you to trust me more. But you see, this goes all the way back to what we talked about in the introduction. Remember the introduction, the two introductions, they kind of set the stage for everything that we would see in the book of Judges. And in that second introduction, we had to wrestle with the truth that our worship will only be as strong as our remembrance. But do you know what that means? Every day, our worship should be greater than the day before. Because every day, if God's mercies are indeed new every morning, God has shown you more goodness and more faithfulness for you to look back on. Y'all have to sleep, so I'm going to have to wake you up this morning, okay? You know, I've been preaching for about 14 years now. Um, that's a good record, right? It's not as long as some. Some of y'all are like, you're still a baby. I know I'm still a baby, but 14 years, I've got a little bit of experience under my belt. It's not as long as some. By God's grace, we'll add a few more years to it. And there's some of you in this room who have been around for all 14 years of that preaching. That's a testimony to God's grace in and of itself because it means I ain't said anything that crazy that's pushed y'all away. Amen? Some of you have seen it from beginning to where it is now. And recently, I told her I was going to do this. She said it was okay. Recently, one of the sisters of the church who's been around for a minute, not from the beginning, but has seen me for quite some time as a pastor, uh, she, she said something to me. It was, I appreciate it. It was, it was a compliment. At least I think it was a compliment. If not, I misunderstood the whole thing. But she said, You've really grown as a preacher. She said, you're more passionate when you preach, and I love it. But then she said this, what changed? Now, I'll be honest. <clears throat> I didn't know how to answer that. And I don't know you're sitting here listening to me right now. And so I, so I'm, I'm going to confess to myself. I didn't really know what to say, so I did what any good pastor would do. I spouted off some religious talk. And I said, well, I don't know, but praise God, he's still working. And listen, that's not bad. It's true. Praise God he's still working. Amen? But I didn't have an answer as to what changed. But that question that you asked me a few weeks ago, it really resonated with me. And I began to ponder that question. Like, I thought about it for a while. And it wasn't until this week when I came to this truth that I realized the answer to that question. You see, I racked my brain trying to figure out what changed in my preaching. Like at one point, two weeks ago, I stood in front of the bookshelf in my house and just stared at the books that I've read for the past couple of years. Because, you know, like any good student, I don't actually put the books back where they go. I just stack up the ones I've read. So I'm looking through the stack, right? I'm saying, well, I haven't read any new books on preaching. This is true. This happened. I'm like, it wasn't the books. I started to think about the conferences and the seminars I've been to throughout the past years to this point. I was like, man, I actually, none of them have been about preaching and how to communicate better. And I thought about my sermon writing process. And I realized that my sermon process, writing process has not changed for 14 years. It begins with prayer, study, frustration. More prayer, more study, a little less frustration. More prayer, more study. Then the frustration goes back up again. More prayer, and somehow the Spirit of God helps me write some words on a piece of paper. It's been the same from the beginning to the end. But it wasn't until this week when I got to this text that I realized what it was. 
You see, it's not study. It's not academics. It's not me and something I'm trying to muster up. It's not seminars and conferences. It's just been time. You see, because in 14 years of preaching, I've been through some stuff as a pastor. I've been excused. I've been misused. I've been abused. And through it all, God has been right there. I've been through the fire and I've come out without the smell of smoke on me. I've been in the lion's den and not one of them has devoured me. I'm standing here 14 years in, not because I trained hard enough, not because I was smart enough, and let's be honest, not because you've been kind enough. I'm standing here because through it all, God has been faithful. I've seen it more, I've experienced it more, and it makes me just want to shout a little bit more. My passion has grown because I've got time in the game. You see, it's not theoretical to go through the fire anymore. It's not theoretical to be in the lion's den. It's not theoretical to have my back up against the wall, and yet God has not once failed to come through. So it excites me a little bit. It makes me want to sing a little louder. It makes me want to shout a little more. He has been faithful through it all. But it's the same old story. But the more I live, the more I get excited to tell it because I'm, I'm living it. Every minute of every day, we have all the more reason to praise Him because it's another minute He has kept His promise to never leave you and never forsake you. And I am convinced God has brought me too far to walk away now. But I'll do you one better. Can I tell you what else this text is positioned to teach us? Even when we fail to see his faithfulness, you can never, never out God's faithfulness. My sin is great, but his mercy is more. I'll, I'll prove it. Look at what it says. Look back at verses 11 through 13, chapter 10, specifically the last line. It says, the Lord said to the Israelites, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Malonites, when they oppressed you and you cried out to me. I did not deliver you, did I not deliver you from them? But you have abandoned me and worship other gods, therefore I will not deliver you again. Now keep reading verse 14. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them deliver you whenever you are oppressed. But the Israelites said, we have sinned. Deal with us as you see fit, only rescue us today. So they got rid of the foreign gods among them and worshiped the Lord and he became weary of Israel's misery. I want you to notice something here. We see here somewhat of an inner conflict between the justice of God and the mercy of God. Right? But let, let me show it to you. Like God's justice demands punishment for sin. Like we got to reckon with that. God's justice demands that somebody pay for the sin. But mercy, by definition, is God not giving us what we deserve. It is God not executing the punishment on us. And God is both just and merciful. And so there's this inner conflict between the two. And initially God says that this cycle has gone on long enough. The covenant is broken. You have not kept your end of the deal. And I am done delivering you. And please hear me. God's not playing when he says this. Like he's not using hyperbole to try to draw them back. If God executed judgment on Israel and all the world in that moment, he would be right to do so because it is what they deserve. But for the first time, 
at least as far as we have seen in the text, genuine repentance appears to take place. Look at verses 15 and 16. It says, but the Israelites said, we have sinned. Deal with us. That's the first time we've seen that. We have sinned. Deal with us as you see fit. Only rescue us today. Now here it is. Here's how you know it's, it appears to be genuine. So they got rid of the foreign gods among them and worshiped the Lord. See, that's repentance. Confession is telling God that you know you messed up. Repentance is actually turning from the mess up back to God. And they got rid of their idolatry. They removed it from their presence. God didn't ask them to do it in that moment. They did it on their own. Even hearing that God wasn't going to deliver them, they got rid of their idols and began to worship the Lord. And it says, and he became weary of Israel's misery. So we see God, once again, rather than execute the justice they deserve, we see him lean into mercy. Now, that does not mean that his justice won't be satisfied. And we'll get to that in a little bit because we still have this tension. In the Old Testament, if, if God is merciful, it's hard for him to exact his justice. And if he is executing his justice, there's often not a lot of mercy present. And there's this inner conflict that has to be resolved. But in this moment, we see God lean into mercy. And let me, let me just kind of say it how I feel it. And then I got to move on because we haven't even got to Jephthah yet. We're 20 minutes in. I don't care how far gone you think you are. As long as there is breath in your lungs, there is mercy available to you. I don't care what you've done. As long as there is breath in your lungs, there is mercy and grace available to you. You know, mercy and grace, they're cousins. They run together, Right? You can never out God's grace as Julia Johnston penned in 1911. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Some of y'all know it. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. And so what does God do? Well, here for Israel, as a result of him leaning into his mercy, he raises up a judge. And here in chapter 11, the parable begins because we're introduced to Jephthah in verses 1 through 3. And it says, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior. He was the son of a prostitute and Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife bore him sons and when they grew up, they drove Jephthah out and they said to him, you will have no inheritance in our father's family because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Top. Then some worthless men joined Jephthah and went out on raids with him. So we learn a little bit about Jephthah in his introduction. And remember, we, we want to understand Jephthah as a real person and what has happened is actual history, but pay attention how God uses this man to show a greater picture of how his people have treated him as God. You see, we learn that Jephthah was a valiant warrior. Let me say it like this. Before Jephthah was ever called upon to fight in this circumstance, he had a track record of winning some battles. But it also we learn that he had a rightful claim. See, though his mother was a prostitute, his father was Gilead himself. They're called Gileadites. 
Clearly, he's got a claim to these people. His dad is the one they're named after. So he was a true Gileadite. He had a claim to the people. But notice this. They kicked him out. Why? Because Jephthah was born of a prostitute. So his brothers saw him as potentially hindering their earthly prosperity. What does the text tell us? They didn't want him to get any of the inheritance. Why? Because they wanted it. And so they cast him out. Now, now watch this. How they treated Jephthah was how Israel had been treating God. Because God has a rightful claim on the people that he has created. And on top of that, God has a track record of fighting for his people. But when the people think that they don't need him anymore and they see faithfulness to God as more of a hindrance to their prosperity in the land, they cast him aside. But let's be clear, Jephthah isn't just a parable of how Israel treats God. He is a living parable of how we can treat God. You know what I'm talking about. I want you, God, as long as you don't infringe on my earthly prosperity. Let, let's be honest. Often we only want God to grant us wishes to get the earthly, earthly prosperity that we want more than we really want Him. Now, it's still not resonating with you. It's resonating with me. Maybe it will resonate with you. We want God to bless our actions rather than finding God's blessing by acting obediently to Him. That's what we want. We want to do what we want to do, and we just want God to bless whatever we want to do. But what the Bible tells us is that the purpose of God is not to bless whatever you want to do. The beauty of a relationship with God is that when we are obedient to Him, we get to experience the fullness of the blessings that come by simply being obedient. We don't talk about this enough in the church. Like, like I want you to see God as glorious, but part of the reason I want you to see God as glorious is because I need you to know you have to be obedient to Him. The Bible is full of commands, and they're not optional. Holiness matters. Obedience matters. Righteousness matters. When God says, don't sleep with that person until you're married, he's not giving you a suggestion. When God says that a marriage is between a husband and wife, he's not giving his opinion. When God says, no, 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 push that aside and run faithfully after me, he's not giving you an option. He is telling you, this is right and good and true. And if you want the blessing that comes from me, you have to be obedient to me. But they didn't want that. And we see it with how they treated Jephthah. They wanted their earthly inheritance and Jephthah was a hindrance. So they cast Jephthah aside. But watch this. This is not us. They go get him when they need him. Look at verses 4 through 11. Sometime later, the Ammonites fought against Israel. So now we're back in the conflict, right? We got a little bit of background in Jephthah. Now we're back to the current time. The Ammonites fought against Israel. When the Ammonites made war with Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Toph. They said to him, come be our commander and let's fight the Ammonites. And Jephthah replied to the elders of Gilead, don't you hate me? Or didn't you hate me and drive me out of my father's family? Why then have you come to me now when you're in trouble? And they answered Jephthah, that's true, but now we turn to you. Come fight with us. Fight the Ammonites, and you will become leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to them, if you are bringing me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your leader. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord is our witness if we don't do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead. The people made him their leader and commander. And Jephthah repeated all his terms in the presence of the Lord at Mizpah. Even in Jephthah's response, we see a picture of how God deals with Israel. 
You see, God is not interested in delivering for deliverance's sake. God is interested in deliverance as a means of exercising his lordship. I'll put it to you plain. Same truth again. You've heard it from me many times. You can't have God as deliverer and not have him as Lord. That's not how God operates. Listen to me. The blessing of God is not only seen in God's deliverance. The blessing is found in having him as Lord. But on the flip side, the failure of Israel to grasp this truth is the reason they keep finding themselves in these hard situations. It's the reason the blessing of God is not present in their life. Please hear me, church. If the only thing you lean on God for is deliverance, you very well may receive deliverance because God is faithful like that, but you will not experience the full joy of the blessing of having him as Lord. Again, blessing is found in obedience. I'll prove it to you. Go all the way back to the beginning. Before there was even sin in the world, and we see that blessing is tied to obedience. Because in Genesis 1.28, when God is speaking to Adam and Eve, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. The blessing is tied to the command. I will bless you, but you have to be obedient to me. Blessing is found in obedience. See, we've convoluted blessings in the church. You hear it in a lot of bad preaching, right? Pray harder and you'll get that earthly blessing. Have more faith, you'll get that healing that you long for. We've hijacked the blessing of God. No, no, no. God says, be obedient and I will bless you. Doesn't mean you'll have everything you want. Doesn't mean your life will go easy. But you'll have me. And that's a blessing. And so Gilead turns to Jephthah. And what Jephthah does in chapter 11, verses 12 through 28, is he actually reasons with the king of the Ammonites before he goes and whoops them. You see, the Ammonite king was convinced that Israel was trying to take their land. Even though Israel wasn't on their land, he thought he was oppressing them for land. He doesn't realize that God is using him to be the instrument of judgment for Israel. But in his mind, he's going after Israel because he thinks Israel is encroaching on their land. Now, when you work through kind of what Jephthah says, and we're not going to completely work through it, he, he basically argues and proves that we're not actually even on your land. Like you have a, you're not fighting us for a valid reason. But, but nevertheless, I love what Jephthah does. Because he walks through the history of Israel. Specifically, God's hand in getting the people from Egypt to where they are now. How God moved. How he, how he made them avoid the Ammonite land and never step foot on it. How God had been orchestrating this entire thing. He declares how God has given them the land that they are in. But look at this. Look at what he says beginning in verse 24 of chapter 11. He says, isn't it true that you can have whatever your God Shamash conquers for you? And we can have whatever the Lord our God conquers for us. Now, are you better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend with Israel or fight against them? While Israel lived 300 years in Heshbon and Aurora and the surrounding villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, why didn't you take them back at that time? I have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by fighting against me. Look at this. Let the Lord, who is the judge... Decide today between the Israelites and the Ammonites. I love this. In, eth in essence, Jephthah has another Elijah moment. You remember Elijah put the gods of Baal to the test, said let's just see whose God shows up and, and delivers. And Jephthah has one of those moments. 
All right, let's see what Shamash gives you. Let's see what Yahweh gives us. He says, our God can fight for us. Your God can fight for you. And at the end of the day, we'll see whose God delivers. It's the same old story. But then verse 27, again, I have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by fighting against me. Let the Lord, who is the judge, decide today between the Israelites and the Ammonites. Again, don't don't miss this. You see, not only is our worship as strong as our remembrance, but our confidence in the future is only as strong as our remembrance. You see, confidence for the present is contingent on what we remember God has done in the past. Let me try to give you a story. Uh, I remember the first time I rode a roller coaster. I do. It's Kentucky Kingdom, right? Kentucky Kingdom, great place. Some people who are here today work there. I remember the roller coaster. I don't even know if it's still there. Is Thunder Run still there? Thunder Run, still there. First roller coaster I ever rode. I was scared to death, right? We had one of those field trips where, I've been to Kentucky Kingdom before, but I've never gone on a roller coaster because it's basically just with my family. And so you don't have to show off for your family. Like I, could be, I could be a little scaredy cat. But we went with our school, and I'm with my friends. And you can't be scared of a roller coaster in middle school, okay? It's not a good look for you. And all my friends are going to get on it. And I knew that Thunder Run didn't go upside down. So I was like, that's where I'll start, petrified, get on the roller coaster, have the time of my life, time of my life. I mean, it it shakes real hard though, you know, but it was still, I had a headache, but I had the time of my life. See, the cool thing about like when the schools go, I don't know if JCPS still does it, they had like a school day where like a lot of the schools went, but like half the schools canceled. So there was nobody in the park basically. So I think I rode that thing like 10 times back to back to back. When I got off of that roller coaster, I was an expert on roller coasters, expert. So we went and rode some of the other roller coasters, right? And I remember one of the later roller coasters towards the end of the day, there was another kid who was scared. And I'm talking to him like, hey, you don't need to be scared. This roller coaster is safe. He's like, well, how do you know? How do you know? I didn't know anything about the bearings, the rails. I had no idea how the seat belts and the things work. But what I knew is that in the past, the roller coaster hadn't killed me. So I had confidence moving forward. I didn't know anything about the gears, the wheels, nothing like that. On a, on a lesser, lower level, how much more ought, to be, ought it to be with God, who is the one who cranks the gears, who holds the world in his hands. We have seen him deliver. How much confidence ought we to have moving forward? But notice that I didn't say our future deliverance is contingent on our remembrance. I said our confidence is. Because God's so faithful that even when your confidence wavers, he will still be good to you. But the only way, listen to me church, the only way we can face the trials ahead of us with boldness is if we remember the trials that we have gone through. Well, how do we do this? Well, how did Jephthah do it? He knew the word of God. Again, pay attention to this. This is a beautiful nuance. When when Jephthah looks for evidence to support his confidence, he recounts Exodus and he recounts Deuteronomy. He knows what God has done so he can say with confidence what God will do. But here's what I want you to see. Jephthah had some experiences in his life that he could have looked back on. It said that he was a valiant warrior. You're not known to be a valiant warrior unless you have valiantly fought some battles. But notice this, when he looks back, he doesn't look back on his own experience as the chief indicator of God's faithfulness. He roots his confidence in the story 
of God of old. A story that he had not even fully experienced, but he had heard about it and believed. Listen to me, we want to remember what God has done and where he has shown up in our individual lives. We do, but that can't be the place that we look first. Because there are times when God has worked and we didn't see it. There are times where where he has been moving and he has been working for our good and we have not been able to trace his hand. There are times that we have gone through the fire and we look back and we still don't know why we went through the fire. But we know that God was there. And what I'm getting at is that if you, want a, if you want confidence in the present based on what God has done in the past, you need to look back further than your experiences because the faithfulness of God is seen in the old story. How do you know that God will heal your broken heart? Because the Bible tells me there is a bomb in Gilead. How do you know that God will deliver? Because the Bible tells me that there were three who were thrown into the fire and four who stood there. How do you know that there is no battle too great because God slayed a giant with a shepherd boy and a rock? How do I know that when I stand before God at the end, I will be invited in because the Bible tells me that the tomb is empty. My confidence is not rooted in my experience, but in the story of old where God has proven to be a faithful God. I'm trying to tell you that you need a confidence that's bigger than your experiences. Because sometimes we can misunderstand our own experiences. And so where do we find that confidence? In the Word of God. I know it might seem kind of Sunday school, and maybe you think you've moved beyond it, but church, let me just tell you, you need the Word of God. Right? Like, that's the basics of obedience. Wake up and read the Word of God. And be reminded of His faithfulness before you need that confidence and you step into your day. We need the word of God. There is life. There is hope. There is power. There is redemption. There is beauty and worship in this book. I don't know if you know this, but life is hard. And I know you might be able to muster up some confidence and some strength. Some of you have walked and lived longer than me, but I know even in my short life, I have yet to been able to muster up all that I need on my own. But in the word of God, There is hope and there is power. And in this book, God speaks. His word will never return void. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures. And so Jephthah, for all his experiences, he remembers back even further to the goodness, the faithfulness, and the victory of God. And guess what? His confidence was not misplaced. Because God shows up. We read in verse 29, The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh, and then through Mizpah of Gilead. He crossed over to the Ammonites from Mizpah of Gilead. Then verse 32, jump down. Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord handed them over to him. He defeated 20 of their cities with a great slaughter from Aurora all the way to the entrance of Maneth and Abel, Karamim. So the Ammonites were subdued before the Israelites. That's it. That's the story. It's not long like Gilead. There's not a lot of movement. There's not a lot of let's, let's dwindle the army down. That's it. That's beautiful. Jephthah places his confidence in God and God shows, through, shows up. We don't need all the details because the greatest testimony that we have is that God showed up. 
We don't know how he fought. He fought 20 cities. He gets two verses. But what the author wants you to see is that he placed his confidence in the Lord and the Lord showed up. I'm trying to tell you, church, God will not fail you. You might not get all the details. You might not know the whole story. But when you look back, the one thing you can know for sure is that God has not failed. Oh, the story we should tell. Now you think at this point, after the Spirit empowers Jephthah, after he does what he says that he would do and he delivers them, you would think that the people would respect him. You'd think that they'd respect God. The one they cast aside initially, but who showed up when they needed him and they delivered and he delivered them. But once again, as the parable continues, after the deliverance occurs, Israel turns on Jephthah just like they've turned on the Lord every time. And in chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, we read how Gilead and Ephraim basically have a civil war because Ephraim's mad that Jephthah didn't use them in the battle. That's what they're worried about. Well, why didn't you let us fight? If I'm Jephthah, because you've been trying and failing. Why would I use you? Spirit of God has empowered him, but it is such a fight that it's a civil war where at least 42,000 people from Israel die as they fight amongst themselves and they turn on Jephthah. And what Israel had done to God over and over is pictured here in how they treat Jephthah. Rather than honor Jephthah, as they had promised to do, they rebelled against him. Jephthah throughout this whole story is a parable that points us to God. But before we can end this sermon, we got to deal with the part of the text that I skipped over that some of you might have noticed I skipped over. We got to deal with Jephthah's vow because something interesting happens that I'm going to be honest with you on the front end has confused me all week and I still don't have an answer for you. But let's go back and look at what happens. You go back to 11, chapter 11, verse 30, and the Spirit comes upon Jephthah, and then the text tells us that Jephthah made this vow to the Lord, that if you in fact hand over the Ammonites to me, whoever comes out of the doors of my house to greet me when I return safely from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord, and I will offer that person as a burnt offering. Then he goes out and fights, and he wins, because God is faithful. Pick back up in verse 34. And when Jephthah went to his home, so this is, this is it. He made the vow. Whatever comes out of my door first, I'm going to offer to you. I'm going to sacrifice to you. And when he went to his house in Mitzvah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child. He had no other son or daughter besides her. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, no. Not my daughter, you have devastated me. You have brought great misery on me. I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot take it back. And then she, the daughter, says to to Jephthah, my father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, for the Lord brought vengeance on your enemies, the Ammonites. She also said to her father, let me do this one thing. Let me wander for two months through the mountains with my friends and mourn my virginity. Go, he said, and he sent her away for two months. So she left with her friends and mourned her virginity as she wandered through the mountains. And 
At the end of the two months, she returned to her father and he kept the vow he made about her. And she had never been intimate with a man. Now it became custom in Israel that four days each year, the young women of Israel would commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Here's why this is so tricky. It's confusing in the original language. And so there are basically two schools of thought about this. I didn't realize how, like, how much people studied this vow. I found three books. The, the, the shortest one was 500 pages that are just written about trying to understand this vow. So I knew when I found that I was in for a hard week, okay? And so there are really two views. There are some who say, listen, Gideon, or, or Jephthah didn't kill his daughter. That's not what the vow is. And they look at the Hebrew text where it says that, 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 they will, that whatever comes through the door first will be given to the Lord and offered as a burnt offering. And they say in the Hebrew that could be translated or offered as a burnt offering. So that whatever came through his door, if it was a human, they would be dedicated to the Lord. If it was an animal, they would be slaughtered for the Lord. And so Jephthah doesn't actually kill his daughter. They say it doesn't make sense because the spirit comes on him. And then the first thing you see is him making a pagan vow to the Lord after he has the spirit. And they say it doesn't make sense. But then you got some who says, listen, that's a modern view. For all of church history, they've understood it, that Jephthah was a fool and was trying to secure his victory because even though God had been faithful. He, like all of us, had doubts. And so he tries to make a deal with God. If you will just do this thing, I'll do this for you. And it came back and it bit him in the butt because what he offered unknowingly was his child. And so after she mourns, he has to kill her and offer to the Lord. But that doesn't make a lot of sense because why would God allow a sacrifice that he has already outlawed in, his, in the word of God? It's so confusing. And I don't know what to make of the vow. Some people say, well, no, this is more of like a Samuel situation where she is now dedicated to the Lord for the rest of her life, which means she will be a virgin, which is why when she goes to the mountain, she doesn't mourn her life, she mourns her virginity because she'll never know marriage and she'll never be able to, to experience that gift from God. And so, so, church, I'm telling you, I read like 13 commentaries and I still have no idea what this vow is about. Did he kill his daughter? Did he dedicate her to the Lord? But then if he dedicates her to the Lord, it doesn't make sense why he mourned. That's a good thing. it's, It's convoluted to say the least. Though Jephthah delivered Israel from the consequences of their sin, what we do know is that the story ends with the painful reality that Israel is still trapped in their rebellion. Here's where I found solace. As a preacher, I like this. I don't have to understand the vow to preach the vow because we're still left with a conflict that God's justice and God's mercy are not both simultaneously satisfied. And we are left with the reality that Israel is still in their rebellion. And as Jephthah has the entire story pointed us to God, Even in this vow, he is still pointing us to God and he is a lesser physical picture of a greater spirituality because there are some things we know for sure about the vow. Jephthah is a father who unknowingly offers his child in an attempt to secure the deliverance of God. And when all is said and done, both Jephthah and his child mourn the outcome. Some of y'all know where I'm going. Jephthah is pointing to a better father. And a better child. He is foreshadowing a father who will be pleased to offer his child. 
and a child who will not mourn, but will embrace what lies ahead. A sacrifice that will perfectly satisfy God's demand for justice and his heart for mercy. And that is the gospel that we believe. That when Jesus Christ came, the Son of God, God was pleased to send him. That God was pleased, as Isaiah says, to crush him so that his justice and his mercy would be satisfied. And as Jesus hung on that cross in your place, the drops of blood was the evidence of his mercy. And as mercy flowed out of him, the justice of God was satisfied as God punished Jesus for us. And the empty tomb declares to us that this was the perfect reconciliation of God's justice and his mercy and we can have life in him it was a father who sacrificed his child the right way it's an old story it's a story that's been told for thousands of years but it's not a fairy tale it's the only story that provides the hope that we need So as we conclude, let me say this. I pray that I never get tired of talking about that old story. And I pray that you never get tired of hearing it. Because we will always need that same old story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the ever-present reminders that you are worthy of our praise and that you are God and God alone and you have a right to our lives. And God, we recognize that we, every one of us, has sinned and fallen short of your glory and you are a God of justice and of mercy. And so, God, we praise you that on the cross of Christ, your justice and your mercy were satisfied. That in Christ, we have hope. Not a fleeting hope, not a fickle hope, but an eternal hope. And through Christ, we see that all of your promises find their yes and their amen so we can have confidence as we walk throughout the rest of our days that no matter what lies in front of us, no matter what battles we face or hardships are sure to come, that we can have confidence that you, the God who did it before, will do it again. And I pray that we will rest in that. But God, more than anything, I pray that we will never get tired of that beautiful, but old story of how you saved a wretch like me. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.